We, uh, as we keep making our way through this eighth chapter, we're, we're at uh, these verses, verses 12 to 14. And quite honestly, they're verses that are subject to some, uh, some pretty significant misunderstanding and misrepresentation. It's probably uh, unintended. It's, it's probably um, uh, just due to, I don't know, any, any number of things that can can impart or lead to misunderstanding. And so I, I really want to encourage us to pay close attention to what Paul is saying here. And I'm going to give us three headings again, three pegs, uh, one for each of these verses. Um, and I want you to keep these things in mind as we make our th- way through these verses. Um, so I'll give you these three pegs, and then I want to tell you a story to, to kind of set this thing up. Here, here are the points. Here is what Paul is telling us here. Because we are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. See, if you, if you have come to Jesus Christ, and there's a whole, there's a whole story there, and, and let me uh, just clarify something that I think um, was misleading from last Sunday's sermon. This is, this is one of those editorial corrections that I need to make with you. If you have come to Jesus Christ in the language of Ephesians 4, the passage that we looked at last week, the old man has been put off, the new man has been put on. And you were, in fact, active in that. I misspoke myself last week and said that the verbs in that text were in the passive voice. Well, they're not. They're in the active voice. When you come to Jesus Christ as an act of the will, and you embrace Him in faith, and you receive Him as Savior, the old man is put off, and the new man is put on, and then in an ongoing way, verse 21 of Ephesians 4, 22, there is this ongoing renewing of your minds, renewing of the totality of your being. But the old man is put off, and the new man is put on. Those are in a past tense specific point in the past. And the whole reason that you come to Jesus Christ in the first place so that the old man can be put off and the new man can be put on is because Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit, has raised you from death to life so that you see things you've not seen, hear things you've not heard, and are enabled to believe things that you could not believe before. That's what Paul is talking about all the way through Romans chapter 6 when he uses the language, which we'll come back to in a little bit, he uses the language of death and resurrection, bondage and liberation, oppression by one husband to whom you have died in order that you might be set free to be married to a new husband who is Jesus Christ the righteous one. See, the reason any of that happens, and those are the verbs that are all in the passive voice, back there in Romans chapter 6. The reason you come, the reason you can be active, the reason you can embrace Jesus Christ is because Jesus has first embraced you and raised you from death to life. When you come, you are transferred from the dominion of the flesh, from the realm of the flesh, and you are transferred into the realm of the Spirit. And if you're a Christian today, that's where you are. You are there because by God's grace, you have been delivered from bondage. 
the bondage you formerly knew. And now you are in the domain of the Spirit, the realm of the Spirit, the environment of the Spirit. And because you are now in the realm of the Spirit, in the domain of the Spirit, here are these three things. You have a new obligation. That's verse 12. And you have a sober responsibility. That's verse 13. And you have a deepened and abiding assurance. A deepened and abiding assurance. Okay, let me say them again. You have a new obligation, as Paul says. It is an obligation not to the flesh. He doesn't conclude his thought. But the implication is you have a new obligation to the Spirit because that's the realm, the domain in which you live. You have a sober responsibility, and that is to go to war. And you have a deepened and abiding assurance, and that is you are led by the Spirit. Now let's look at these things in a bit of detail. But with this little story setting us up, when our oldest daughter Katie was five years old, She was in kindergarten. It was a winter day in Richmond, Indiana. And the kindergartners were set free from bondage in their classrooms (laughs) to run and play on the playground. And Katie was running and playing on the playground. And somewhere between the swing set and the monkey bars or the monkey bars and the the merry-go-round or the merry-go-round and the swing set, somewhere in there she tripped and she fell and she scraped up her knees on the gravel in the playground. You know playgrounds? Remember playgrounds? Gravelly, nasty things if you fall on them. And she tore her pretty white tights. If you live up in Indiana, you wear tights in the wintertime to keep your legs warm because it's cold outside in February or March or January. And she tore her tights and bloodied her tights from the gravel. And for the rest of the morning, I don't know what this says about me as a father or Barb as a mother. For the rest of the morning, she was afraid. I mean, it makes me weep just thinking about it. She was afraid to come home because she thought we would be mad that running and playing and being a child, she had fallen and ripped her tights and bloodied her tights. She was afraid would be, we would be upset with her. You know, what, what does a kid need when a kid has fallen, ripped her tights, bloodied her tights? What does a kid need? Assurance of parental Love. I'm not mad at you. You're my child. You were being a child. You were doing what kids do. You were running. You were playing. Folks, there are two words that we've used. I've used them repeatedly as we've looked at Romans chapter 8. Two words to keep in mind. Change and struggle. We are being changed. Michelangelo's later works, remember that image. They were, they were depictions of human beings emerging from unformed substances, from pieces of rock, human beings emerging, not finished products, but emerging. And there is struggle in the Christian life. We walk 
and we stumble and fall. We run sometimes and we stumble and fall. And sometimes we just stand still and we stumble and fall. And we tear our tights and we bloody our knees. And the thing the Father wants to communicate to us unequivocally and without hesitation is, I am not angry. I'm not angry. You're my child. You're my child. And I love you. Now in the midst of that, in the midst of that, as God, again, in this passage, seeks to give us assurance, these things are going on. There are these three things that are going on. We have a new obligation. I've alluded to it already, suggested it to you already. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And again, here Paul is drawing a comparison, isn't he? He's drawing a comparison between the realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit. Now, let me, let me just camp on this yet again as we read these verses, 12 and, and 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Brothers, we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I know that there are people out there who are saying, well, I'm in the midst of this struggle. I want to clear away some brush here first. I'm in the midst of this struggle. Is is Paul saying that if if I commit some sort of sin... He says here, if I commit some sort of sin, if I, if I live according to the flesh, I will die. But if by the Spirit, if I commit some sort of sin, am I going to lose my salvation? And the answer is unequivocally no. That's not what he's saying. He's simply reminding us of a principle that exists. If you are in the realm of the Spirit and you live in the realm of the Spirit and you persist in living in the realm of the Spirit, that will lead to death. Is there some sense in which when I participate in the realm of the flesh that I suffer certain effects and consequences? Yes, of course. But you see, what Paul is trying to do here and what he's trying to do through this whole section is reassure people, give assurance to people of their father's kind, fatherly affection for them. He's simply stating a principle here. You understand? If you live according to the flesh, persist in living according to the flesh, that will lead to death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's speaking to those who have been transferred from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit, simply using again that contrast and comparison between the flesh and the Spirit. And he's picking up Again, I've alluded to this already. He's picking up all of this imagery that has preceded this eighth chapter. Imagery that goes back to chapter 6. Again, where Paul uses the imagery of death and resurrection. You've died to sin. You've been raised to newness of life. And he uses the imagery of slavery in Romans chapter 6. You've been set free from bondage. Now, to embrace a new master. And then in chapter 7, he uses that imagery. The imagery of a husband, the law, as an oppressive husband. From whom we have been set free that we might be wed to another. 
Now, what, what Paul is doing here in these verses is simply extracting implications. He's drawing out implications from what he has been saying previously. He's saying, if this is true, then this is true. Okay? He's constructed an if-then kind of a proposition for us. There's the conditional clause, and there's the clause of consequence, or the clause of result. It's like this. If you put your hand in the fire, you will be burned. If this happens, then that's going to happen. Now, in the midst of constructing this argument, this cause-effect thing, he reminds them in verse 13 of a general principle. It's just a reminder, okay? This is the way life works. But what he is not saying to these Romans who are listening to this letter, what he's not saying is, if you commit some sin, you're going to lose your salvation. No, he's contrasting these realms, these spheres, again, in that verse. Okay, so what's the if-then thing? Where does the if-then start? Well, it actually begins back up in verse 9. And that's why I had us read these verses. Verse 9, you, however, he's addressing these folks. Now, remember, He's never met them. He doesn't know them. He's writing this letter to them so that when he gets to Rome, they will know what he thinks about the gospel. And so he writes this. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see what he's doing? I mean, he's mindful of the fact that this is a mixed audience that this letter is coming to. And it's a kind of a warning. It's a kind of a a reminder. You know, if you're still in the flesh, it's going to lead to death. But if, if you have come to Jesus Christ by his power, by his grace, if you are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, then the spirit of God dwells in you. And these are the things that flow out of that. If this is the case, then these are the consequences. These are the results. These are the things that necessarily come out of that proposition. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Okay? If you're in fact no longer in the flesh, but you are in fact in the spirit, here's the first result, the first consequence. Even though your bodies are dying, Yet the Spirit is life in you because of righteousness. And notice the language Paul uses. Folks, this is big. I mean, it's just really big, really, really big. Notice that he doesn't say, though the body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. That's not the language in the text. I think the NIV renders it that way, but it's not a good rendering. Notice what he says. Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And here's what the emphasis is, folks. The emphasis is not on you. It's not on your resources. It's not on your ability. It's not on your spirit being alive. 
The emphasis is upon the Holy Spirit of God who is the source of life, the very same Spirit to whom we referred last week, the Spirit who hovers over the creation, whose work is the glorious work, the glorious work of executing the purpose of the Father through His Word, bringing the creation from a condition of disorder and darkness and disarray into a condition of glory and beauty. The resource is all in Him. It's all in Him. Even though your bodies... We had a memorial service yesterday. Right here. And the remains of a deceased person were here. It's a picture of me, friends. It's a picture of you. My body's decaying. I can't do anything about it. But don't let the decay that's going on in your body and that extends even to your mind. I joked with Glenn and Zach this morning. I couldn't remember who Absalom's brother was who raped Tamar. His name now I remember is Amnon. And I couldn't remember that last night sitting with Barb on the beach. I should know these things. I'm a pastor. People ask me questions and I need to have the information at the tip of my fingers. And I'm finding that I'm forgetting. Even though your bodies are dead, dying, Paul doesn't say dying, he says dead, even though the body is dead because of sin. The spirit within you is life because of righteousness. And that spirit, given as a gift to you because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, secured by his perfect obedience, given to you as a gift, that spirit, as we said last week, is going to keep doing what he started and what he did back in the creation, making you after the image of his glorious son. And he won't stop until he's finished. The spirit is life. Because of righteousness. That's the first consequence. Second consequence. If the Spirit dwells in you, verse 11, then this Spirit will give life even to your mortal bodies. This very same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Oh, I hate that thing. Those ashes, those ashes will be raised, reconfigured, renewed, restored fully to be reunited with a departed soul that is now in the presence of Jesus. Perfected and glorified body and soul, Laddie Burchard will enjoy the blessedness of Jesus face to face the new heaven, the new earth forever and ever. Don't let your dying, decaying bodies be the final word on your final outcome. This spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. That's the second consequence. And then here's the third consequence that follows from this. And this is the thing that we're getting to in this. I have a new obligation. I have a new obligation. Look, folks, I've been delivered from death. I've been delivered from bondage. I've been delivered from that brutal husband. I've been transferred 
from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit. And now I have a new obligation. And that obligation is no longer to the flesh. It is an obligation now to this spirit who dwells within me, who has taken up residence within me, who brings the very person of the Father and the very person of the Son into my soul, into my heart, there to dwell. It's a new way of life. That's what we've been saying. It's a new orientation. It's a new north star. I have a new obligation, and that obligation now is to the Spirit, to this new master, to this new husband. Why? Because I've been delivered. I've been set free. I've been put on a new path. Is it an easy path? Is it an easy way? Is it an easy road? Point number two. With this new obligation comes a sober responsibility. And look at the language that the Apostle Paul uses. He uses the language. It's, it's graphic. He uses the language of execution. Putting to death the deeds of the body. Or as one commentator puts it, the misdeeds of the body. That's interesting, isn't it? In verse 10, he refers to our more, I'm sorry, verse 11, he refers to our mortal bodies, this work that has begun in us by which we are transferred from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, this work that is executed by the spirit will one day extend to our mortal bodies. It will result in our being raised by this spirit just as Jesus was. But in the interim, it is these bodies that give us trouble. It's these bodies that give us trouble. Let me see if I can make clear what it is I believe Paul is telling us here. We, we know something about the struggle of the Christian life, don't we? But we've said, based on what Paul says here, and what Paul says in Ephesians 4, and what he says other places, we have said that the struggle is not between the old man in us and the new man in us. You don't have two natures in you. If I can summarize this, you had an old nature, and the Spirit of God has acted to give you new birth, to give you birth from above, to impart new life to you, to completely reorient that nature so that that nature is changed and now is set on a new trajectory. You, at the core of your being, have been given new life. And you're growing in that new life. The struggle is not with an old nature. The struggle is with the residue, the residual presence of the realm of the flesh that finds its home in your mortal bodies. Okay? The conflict is, as Paul says in Galatians 5, a conflict between my literal flesh and the spirit. 
See, Paul uses the word flesh in lots of different ways. He uses it to refer to our physical bodies in some places. He uses it to refer to this dominating realm from which we've been delivered. Here he uses it in both respects. He uses the word flesh to refer to this realm, but here, in referring to the body and putting to death the deeds of the body, he has in mind our literal physical existence. Let me read John Murray in this respect. Murray writes, in Murray's commentary on Romans, it's the one you go to. He's the go-to guy, okay? Regarding the deeds of the body, the physical entity which we call the body is undoubtedly intended. And Paul implies, therefore, uh, and implies, therefore, that the apostle is thinking of those sins that are associated with and registered by the body. Okay? So where's the struggle? Okay, it's not yin and yang in that sense, right? It's not this old man, new man thing on the inside of me. It is rather this principle of life that has been birthed within me, that is going to be nourished and that is going to grow, and that one day is going to extend to the totality of who I am, including my body, The struggle now is between that principle of life within me and the residual presence of the flesh that finds its home in my body. In my body. In my physical existence. But let's be clear about this. When we think, as as Murray mentions it, as we think about those sins of the body that we typically associate with the physical existence physical human existence, this physical entity, there are the obvious things, aren't there? Right? There are the obvious things, the things that are impolite, the things that we don't talk about, things like sexual sins and gluttonies and the like. But let's understand that the sins of the body extend beyond just the acts like that. These things that Paul admonishes us to put to death, these things that Paul admonishes us to execute by the power of the Spirit, by the means which the Spirit appoints, they extend not only to those acts, those physical acts, but they extend as well to the attitudes and the inclinations that are a part of this bodily existence, this physical existence. It isn't just those things, those impolite things that we can't talk about publicly. Think about the ways in which we're preoccupied with our bodies when it comes to appearance or covetousness, the covetousness of the appearance of others or the jealousy that we have toward the appearance of others or Uh, jealousy and covetousness with respect to power or money or influence that can make us attractive physically or in some material or physical sense. There is a fuller and larger catalog of things that Paul has in mind as he uses this word body and as we're admonished by the Spirit, by this Spirit who is dwelling within us to put these things to death. Put these things to death. Attack them. Assault them. 
wage war against them. Why? Because you've been set on a new path. That's not who you are. That's not where you're headed. And if you think back to what Paul has said previously, you have to ask yourself the question, what good did any of that stuff do you before anyway? What good did it do you? And so attack it, assault it, wage war against it. There's a tremendous illustration of this in what I think is becoming my favorite movie. Several of them that are tied for first. This one now is tied for first. It's the movie A Beautiful Mind, the story of John Nash. And if you remember this scene, this particular scene powerfully depicts what it is that Paul is talking about here. John Nash has come through this horrible psychosis to the place where he understands that his three imaginary friends are not real. They're not real. He sees them wherever he goes. They're present with him wherever he goes. But he's come to the place where he realizes they are not real. And there's a scene in the lawn of Princeton University where there are all these students on the lawn and John Nash is wailing and flailing and yelling and screaming and fighting against these three constant companions. Nobody else can see him. But to him, they are real. And do you know what he's saying? You are not real. You are not real. You are not who I am. And he fights. And he struggles. And he flails. And he yells. And if he had had a sword, he would have wielded that sword to lop off anything he could. Why? Because those three constant companions meant death to him and not life. Not life. I have three constant companions. Fear, worry, and anxiety. And they are with me every waking moment. And they interrupt my sleep. And they are real. Paul is calling upon me, calling upon these people who have been delivered, who have been set free from what used to be real, but what is no longer real. He is calling upon us to wage that same fight and battle and struggle against these things which imprison and bind and corrupt and produce death. So, We have a new obligation, and we have a sober responsibility. And that responsibility is the responsibility to fight. And you have to come back next week, because next week we'll talk about the weapons with which we wage this warfare. You've got to come back so that we can talk about the means of grace, the means which God has appointed, and with which and by which, by the grace and power of the Spirit, we fight this fight and wage this struggle. So the problem is our bodies, and that's why Paul says to the Corinthians, I, it's cute, isn't it, how language works? I don't buffet my body, but I buffet my body. 
See, I don't indulge my body. I keep my body under. The same kind of imagery, the same thing is going on in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul refers to the outer man that is wasting away, but to this inner man that is being renewed day by day. See, this outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to talk about this glorious day, this spectacular day, when we will not be naked, but rather clothed. And we will be clothed with bodies, a physical existence, perfectly married to our souls, in which we will forever Enjoy the blessedness of the new heaven and the new earth. New obligation, sober responsibility, and in the midst of it, in the midst of this struggle comes this great, incredibly wonderful word of assurance. In the midst of the fight, there is this deep and abiding assurance that all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now let me just ask you. You hear the phrase, the leading of the Spirit. What do you think of? People use it all the time. This poor phrase has suffered abuse at our hands. When you hear the leading of the Spirit, what do you think? You think subjective promptings. You think things being suggested to the mind. You think inclinations or something like that. You think, well, the Spirit led me to do this. The Spirit led me to do that. Please, please disabuse yourself of those notions. Empty your heads of those ideas. That is not what Paul is talking about here. The leading of the Spirit has got to be understood in the context of this battle against the flesh this battle against these bodily impulses and inclinations, this struggle that there is to subdue these things, this leading of the Spirit has to be understood in that context. And the language that Paul uses is very, very specific and it is very, very strong. There is a marvelous article I read years ago by B.B. Warfield another one of the go-to guys. And it's in his volume entitled Biblical and Theological Studies. And he talks about this verse. And he talks about this particular word, led, being led by the Spirit. And here's what he says. And this guy was no dummy. He was at the top of the heap. The Greek language possesses words which precisely express the ideas of being led. But the apostle passes over these words and selects a term which expresses determining control over our actions. Some of these other terms are used elsewhere in the scriptures to set forth appropriate actions of the Spirit with respect to the people of God. For example, our Lord promised his disciples that when the Spirit of truth should come, he would guide them into all truth. Here, a term is employed which does not express controlling leading, but what we may perhaps call suggestive leading. It is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament of God's guidance of his people, and once at least of the Holy Spirit. Teach us to do thy will, for thou art my God. Let thy good spirit guide us in the land of uprightness. 
But the term which Paul employs in our text is a much stronger one. It is not the proper word to use of a guide who goes before and shows the way, or even of a commanding general who leads an army. It has stamped upon it, rather, the conception of the exertion of a power of control over the actions of its subjects, which the strength of the one led is insufficient to withstand. You know what it means to be led by the Spirit? It means that God, your loving Heavenly Father, because of the beautiful, wonderful work of Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit has laid hold of you. He has taken you by the hand. And once He has taken you by the hand, He will never let you go. You see how powerful and significant that language is? In the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this fight, with this new obligation and this new very sober responsibility, you have this deep and abiding assurance that this spirit who dwells within you has laid hold of you and he will not let go. He will lead you. And he will keep leading you until he gets you to the place where he knows you both need and desperately want to be. And that is a condition of perfection, body and soul. My friends, you are the beloved children of your heavenly father. He has laid hold of you by his spirit and he will never let you go. Your bloody tights do not offend him. Your scrapes and falls do not drive him away from you. They in fact draw him closer to you because you are the objects of his undying love and affection. And so with that assurance, he would say, let's go. Is it hard? Yes. Is it long? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. Let's go fight. And we'll see this when we get into chapter 8 a little bit farther. We will find ourselves saying what the apostle says. When I consider the struggles of this life, they are not worth comparing the glories that will be revealed in us, which Mother Teresa paraphrased in this way. When I consider the struggles of this life as compared to the glories of heaven, the struggles of this life are like spending a night in a bad hotel. He will never let you go. He's laid hold of you in his love, and you're safe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, give us grace to fight this fight. You've set us on this path. You've laid hold of us never to let go of us. Give us grace to fight this fight, to struggle against these passions and these inclinations and these lusts and these desires. Give us grace to do battle with this stuff until that day when the Spirit who raised you from the grave will give life to our mortal bodies fully and finally and forever. 
transforming them to radiate your glory to the rest of the new heaven and the new earth around. Hear our prayer, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.